thank you, Tim, and thank you, Alison. As Tim has said, we're going to look at First Timothy, chapter three. Sorry, First Timothy, Second Thessalonians, uh, chapter three. That's what happens when you've got a chairman whose name's a book of the Bible, eh? especially when it's in the next page in your Bible. So, Second Thessalonians, chapter three. And it's the first five verses that we're going to read and consider. Paul writes, Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honoured as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. For not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Amen. Amen. Now, as we've gone through, well, both First and Second Thessalonians, there is much that is about the future, and the word eschatology has been used in numerous, uh, numerous times by preachers. The, the messages... Uh, are to do with things that are future and the Lord's coming again is uh, the, the main theme of both First and Second Thessalonians. And it's interesting that uh, as we come to the passage that's under consideration tonight in chapter 3, along with the tail end of chapter 2, Paul starts to deal with the implications of that teaching for the believers, uh, particularly the believers in Thessalonica, but of course, um, by implication, for believers down through the ages. Uh, John Stott uh, divides Second Thessalonians up. Uh, each, he just uh, gives a name to each chapter. Uh, to, to chapter one, he says it's about the revelation of Christ, which indeed it is. It's about the coming of, of the Lord. Chapter two is about the rebellion of Antichrist. And chapter three entitles The Responsibility of Christians. And uh, that's kind of the theme I'd like to look at tonight. The Responsibility of Christians. It's, it's good when we look at scripture and we're encouraged to think of things that are to come. And we have a solid doctrinal basis for the hope that we have. It's not just that we have some sort of airy-fairy feeling, is it? Ian, our brother Ian Lewis, Ian did a very good job of emphasising that point last Lord's Day when dealing with uh, the tail end of chapter 2. Doctrine allows us to really stand firm. And the tail end of chapter 2 is about how we can stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, says Paul to the Thessalonians. But as he moves into chapter 3, he starts to deal with the implications for the believers. And he really wants to talk about the central role of the word of God in that. And that's what we're going to think about. Um, of necessity, we'll mention a wee bit about the next, uh, the next section, which is from verse 6 down to verse 15, which is dealing with a particular problem of idleness. And uh, some people had got the wrong idea. They thought that because the Lord was coming, they might as well just uh, stop working. 
Um, there was no need to earn money. The Lord was going to come, so they would make do. And uh, whatever else they were doing, it wasn't that they were rushing to you know, preach the gospel or whatever. They were just being idle. They were being loafers, uh, in fact, Paul calls them. But that's, uh, I think it's a Brother Phil Cherry next week, so we'll leave Phil to, to deal with that in detail, but we will make reference to, to parts of it. So Paul's written about the future as it has been revealed to him. And we might ask the question, well, where does that leave us between now and then? Well, God has certainly given his people, given us, direction through Scripture. And it's the Scriptures that we turn to, to get the guidance and the direction for how we should live our lives in a way that's pleasing to God. It doesn't mean that when we turn to Scripture, we can turn to a page and it says, for example, when I am going to be offered this job, this new job next week, um, it's going to be in this place and therefore I'll accept it. It's not black and white like that, is it? But it's based on principles that we should allow to govern our lives. And by reading Scripture and by praying intelligently about it, we have the ability to, if you like, interpret the map that is the reading of the Scripture um, with the wisdom of God. And, you know, James talks about the wisdom that is from above. We, we pray for wisdom. And one of the big things that we're praying for really is praying for the ability to use that which we read in Scripture as a roadmap for our lives so that we know that we're living our lives as best we can in the will of God. So God has given his people direction through Scripture. Now, there's, there's a couple of, in chapter 2, there's a, there's a couple of sections where he, he deals with, with that. The first couple of verses, um, he talks about a uh, spoken word, a letter coming from us, and the, the importance of, um, of pulling together things based on the word of God. And also he talks in verse 15 of chapter 2 about the traditions. So on one hand, he's, he's talking about the word of God and he's talking about the traditions. Now, sometimes when we think about traditions, our mind might go to that passage in Matthew's gospel. In fact, I, I'm sure, I should have checked my diary, but I'm sure I spoke from it when we were going through Matthew, that part of Matthew's gospel on a Sunday morning. And the Pharisees accused the Lord that the disciples weren't following the traditions of the fathers. Now, that use of the word traditions is to do with the habits and the rules that the, the rabbis had made. They were man-made rules. It's important that we recognize when, when Paul's talking here about the traditions that you were taught by us, that we put it in context that the Thessalonians, stating the obvious, didn't, when Paul went to Thessalonica to preach to them, they did not have in their hand a copy of 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians or any of the other epistles for that matter. 1 Thessalonians was probably the first one to be written. So these saints who were receiving this letter and this teaching from Paul, Paul couldn't say, you've got the entirety of the scriptures to turn to. 
John hadn't been given the revelation of the Lord Jesus and Patmos at the point that Paul wrote these things. And Paul is describing these things as the traditions that you were taught by us. And whether that's by our spoken word as he preached or by our letter, referring back to what we would know as First Thessalonians. But what's important is that we recognise that both the truth and the word of God in that sense and the traditions that Paul is talking about here, they're the Lord's message. So the first lot, really, the former set, they relate to the fact that they originate with God. That's the kind of concept behind it. And the latter is to emphasize that Paul and the other apostles who had delivered it had had it revealed to them by God. Now, we don't have that happen nowadays. So as I stand and teach today, I am not saying what I'm saying because I've had a revelation from God. When Paul lifted his pen and wrote, and indeed when he preached and taught, I'm not saying that every time he spoke, he had a revelation, but what he was teaching and what he was writing was revealed to him by God. And also, it's worth just highlighting that some of it had been passed on to him by the apostles, the other apostles, mainly, of course, the, the disciples, the 11 disciples that we know of. And their role was unique for that time. And we now have the scriptures. We have it in its completeness. We have the scriptures complete. And indeed, we're warned not to add to them, nor to take away from them. Such would be wrong. Now, clearly, there's opportunity for people to add a little bit of uh, something onto Scripture, saying that they've had a revelation, and, and the whole of the Mormon church is based on that false concept. There's also the danger of people not liking bits and taking bits out. And we, we sometimes see people not wanting to accept certain parts of the Bible as being genuine scripture, but that's warned against. So the word of God has a central role. And Paul is going to talk about its use as it's spread across the world in the gospel, to proclaim the message, and also its authority within the church. He expresses these two longings. Verse 1 says that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honoured. And in verse 4, he says there is confidence that you are doing and will do the things that we command. So both of these things relate to how the word is being used, if you like, how it's being applied, and how these believers are to take the word of God and do something with it in their lives, and how it will be used by God in the world and within the church. So both things relate to growth in the church. I don't know how big the church was at the time that Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, We've got no real, nothing really to base an indication of. 
We know of the thousands who were saved in Jerusalem, but we don't know how many more thousands were saved in the early days uh, of the apostles' teaching and in, and in uh, Paul's ministry and his, um, and his missionary journeys. But certainly it was a big number, but nothing like as large as it would be today. And the church was going to be built, said the Lord Jesus. It was going to grow. And both of these things we're talking about relate to church growth. The word of the Lord speeding ahead and being honoured as Paul and the others preached it and declared it forth to those who were in need, in mission, in the preaching of the gospel. And as other saints to whom it was being communicated would have told their neighbours or whatever other method was being used to spread the word of God in the world so that the church was growing in extent. But the second aspect that we read of from verse 4, and is really the introduction to starting to talk specifically about those who are idle, but we keep within our passage and deal with that introductory sentence where he says, we have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing, this is the church he's writing to, that you are doing and will do the things that we command. So not just this church growth about increasing the quantity, it's about increasing the quality, if we can describe it that way. It's about the intensity of the believers. Now, it's not making them more saved. It's not an issue of their salvation. It's not an issue of whether you're more saved as you study God's word. We know that. But it is to do with how we live our lives. So God is looking for the word of God to be used to increase the size of the church. And when believers join the church at the instant of salvation, for them to go on and by obeying and doing the things that they are commanded to do, their quality of Christian life will increase. Their sanctification will proceed. So let's think first of all then about the spread of the word in the world, which really is the first three verses. Um, it's interesting, Paul has been talking about, at various times you read about Paul say, using phrases like, our prayer for you is, or whatever. But here, Paul says, pray for us. Paul understood that the work in which he was involved needed the prayer of these saints. And that work was a work that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honoured. In the way it happened amongst you, says Paul, as it had done in Thessalonica. Paul liked his analogies, didn't he? Speeding ahead and being honoured. It's like the athlete who runs out and wins the prize and gains the honour and is crowned with the... the um, the wreath 
of, of glory, as it were. God's word should run swiftly. Paul's invoking the thought that the word of God is to be spread not slowly and haphazardly and kind of, well, if I bump into somebody and they ask, I'll maybe mention it to them. Paul was positive in his outreach and he was praying, asking the, he was asking the brothers and sisters in Thessalonica to pray for him and uh, Timothy and Silas that the word of the Lord might speed ahead and that it would result in glory to the name of the Lord Jesus, of course, and that the word itself would be glorified as people would come to salvation and they would find salvation and glorify the preaching of the word themselves and that they would indeed glorify the word of God as they had learned it. He also prays, or asks them to pray anyway, that they might be delivered from wicked and evil men. That is, is a very strong description, isn't it? Wicked and evil men. It's, the word could, you know, it's got the sense of being on people who are unreasonable, people who are perverse, people who are bigoted. Now, we come across people like that in the 21st century, but Paul was coming across them in the 1st century. Some of those who were wicked and evil men were Jews. Paul himself had suffered terribly up in Thessalonica, of course, and had been chased out of the city. Paul had been left for dead. These were evil men. They were hypocrites because they claimed that they were doing God's work. But they were bigots. They weren't interested in listening to anything reasonable. They themselves were unreasonable. And of course, as we would seek to be involved in the spread of the gospel, we come across people like that. And even setting aside our personal involvement in it, we recognise that there are people abroad who could be described as wicked and evil men, and women as well, of course, who are working against the spread of God's word, working against the spread of the truth. If we think of our recent politics in our own country, clearly there was a lot of debate about the Prime Minister's capability of knowing what truth is. I don't think, from memory, he um, was doing things that were overtly anti-Christian in the sense of being against the spread of God's word. But certainly, people know how to bend the truth. But I think these people are not people who could be accused of bending the truth to satisfy their own purposes. We're talking about people who have set their minds perversely and unreasonably in 
go back to the tail end of chapter 2, not believing the truth. Somebody sent me a clip, well, two or three clips, from something that was in YouTube, and it was a guy interviewing, I uh, can't remember the guy's name, but he was interviewing various people in, in the theme, um, What is a Woman? I think, I think he made a film, and these were excerpts from it. Mad someone. Um, that's not so important. But one bit that was staggering was he was asking this woman a question. So, so maybe I'm a woman, says he. She says, yeah, that's a really good question. Deadly serious. And the man's sitting there bemused. He says, my mother is a woman. My wife's a woman. You think I might be? Yeah, maybe you are. You'll need to find out. And it moved on, there were two or three. But the clip that staggered me, really, was a professor of um, a transsexual studies or something in, in a US university, it wasn't, it wasn't in Britain. And the interviewer used the phrase, I'm just trying to understand the truth. And this guy took exception to that. He said, I don't like your terminology. And I don't think it's an accident that people reject so repulsively the concept that there is the truth. And this fellow said, in essence, I'm not having that. And he accused the guy of bigotry, the interviewer. And he said, you've got 30 seconds to explain to me what you mean by that term. And I'm out of here if you don't do it to my satisfaction. Now, that's not somebody who's telling a few porkies to try and cover things up for something they've done that they know they shouldn't have done and they're nearly going to get caught. It's not that kind of not telling the truth. That's a resolute mindset which says, I'm not prepared to believe what you're portraying as the truth. And it's increasingly prevalent compared with, say, 50 years ago, shall we say. But it's important we recognise it's not new. Paul was writing about it. It was different issues, but the principle was there. People don't want to hear the truth. And they will attempt to harm those who stand for the truth. So Paul was saying, the word of God has a critical role to play in, in how people come to know God. And it's important that it be spread abroad in the world. But don't think that you'll turn up and tell people what the truth is, and they'll roll over and believe you, and millions will be gloriously saved. Paul says there will be those who are opposed to it. For not all have faith. But in contrast, says he, but the Lord is faithful. These people don't have the faith to believe the word of truth. But never doubt 
says Paul, when involved in spreading the good news of the word of God in the world, to increase the extent of the church in quantity. Never think that you won't have the Lord behind you, says Paul. The Lord is faithful. He will establish you. That harps back to the end of chapter 2, doesn't it? How our hearts are to be comforted and established in every good work and word. The Lord will establish you. The faithful Lord will establish you and guard you against the evil one. He's no longer talking about evil, wicked and evil men, individual people, humans at the end of the day, nasty though they are and harmful though they could be, only men. But what he's saying is the evil one, Satan himself, is at work behind all this, but the Lord is faithful and on our side. And Paul says, pray for us in this work because we couldn't do it ourselves. But the Lord is faithful. It says in verse three, he will establish you and guard you against the evil one. It doesn't say he might. He will guard you. He's faithful. And we need to have faith that these words are real. To depend on them. And depend on them in our lives. The, go back to Matthew's gospel again. Matthew chapter 13, one of the places where we read the parable of the sower. And the sower, we know the story, goes out to sow. And the word of God is the seed that he's sowing. Because the Lord explains that parable to his disciples. And it's recorded for us. So we know exactly what the parable means. Unlike some others that we've got to um, think hard about. The parable of the sower is explained to us very clearly. Or at least the, the Lord's explanation of it to the disciples is recorded for us that we can read it. And the Lord talks about the seeds that were scattered and they ended up on paths. Paths were hard things. People trod on paths. The soil was rammed down. And says the Lord, the birds of the air came and devoured them. The seeds. They were devoured. That soil was impenetrable. And the birds devoured it. And then when the Lord is explaining to the disciples what the parable means, you remember what he says about that? The evil one comes and snatches it away. So Paul's referring here to evil men and then talking about being guarded against the evil one and the Lord himself made clear speaking to the disciples 
who were to, of course, become the apostles in the context we're talking about a moment ago, that the evil one comes and snatches away the word of God from those who have a heart or heart and it doesn't penetrate. There are forces at work that we really don't understand, that we can't comprehend. But the faith that we have that brought us to salvation is the faith that we should have to trust a verse that says, he will establish you and guard you against the evil one. When we're campaigning, especially in the context of campaigning to spread the word of God. We are not like the wicked and evil men who don't have faith. We do have faith. And that faith allows us to trust God. And Paul, in particular, as we think about him, he exhibited that faith in, in spade loads, as it were. <coughs> of course, if you ask Paul, he said, oh, you know, who am I? But we read of the things in Acts, in Acts that Paul did and the way he stood up. Sent out of towns and cities, and he gets up and sort of figuratively gives himself a shake and heads back in. It's not what the coward would do. But I don't think Paul would have said that he was a big, brave man. I think Paul would have said, I've got faith in my God. And I need to spread the word of God. I need to spread the truth so that people might come to salvation. And the thing that he was going to do was proclaim the truth of the word of God and of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, sometimes he refers to it as my gospel or our gospel. I, that's so that he can make the point that it's not some perverse distortion of the gospel. He's wanting to reassure the Thessalonians and others that it's the gospel that he taught them that they should stick by because he got it from God. And when it comes to crunch, Paul will always go back to describing it as the gospel of God or the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ because it is his. It's not Paul's own gospel understand that so the evil one opposes but the Lord is faithful and the word can be spread but then just at the tail end of this passage that we've been looking at we have this uh, beginning setting the scene as it were before he um, starts what the ESV entitles a warning against idleness. So, as I said earlier, I'll not intrude into Phil's passage. I'll let Phil deal with the subject of the idlers and the, the, uh, the loafers who had got their teaching wrong in their interpretation and were taking advantage of it. But suffice to say that Paul says... We have confidence in the Lord, verse 4, about you that you're doing and will do the things that we command. So he speaks to the church as a whole in Thessalonica. And the characteristic of the church as a whole, of the majority, was that they were doing the right thing. The problems were with the minority. 
and he commends them and he expresses his confidence in them that they are doing and will do the things that we command. And one thing about, from the rest of the chapter really, until the benediction, Paul talks about command and he talks about obey. He uses these words, you know, like like a soldier being given orders. Rome was a great military might. In that time, anybody in the empire would have been used to seeing soldiers about. The concept that the centurion barked an order and the 80 men in the century sort of said, hmm, we take a vote on it. What do we think? I'm not sure, boss. That, that just didn't feature, did it? These men did what they were told, when they were told. The centurion, speaking to the Lord, of course, says, I'm a man used to giving orders. You know, I, I say something and somebody does it. And Paul is describing the teaching that he has been given. That which, if you like, we thought about as the traditions, which is the word of God, Paul emphasizes that it's not a set of ideas that you can pick and choose and say, yeah, that one appeals to me. That's, that's, that kind of fits with my character. Yeah, I like that. I like that idea. I'll, I'll do that thing. Nah, that, that's not me. I just don't do that. See this, see this don't be angry stuff. I was born with a foul temper. And, you know, it's just on me to not be angry, so I'm not bothered about that one. And we can all place our own weaknesses in that sentence, can't we? But Paul describes the teaching that is the Word of God as something that must be obeyed. Not because Paul said it or wrote it, but because it is the word of God. And he says, I've got confidence in the Lord about you, to the Thessalonians, that you're doing that. He'd heard about them. We, you know, we read about how their reputation was spread around. And he was able to say it sincerely. It's not just nice words to butter them up. That you are doing and will do the things that we command. And in the church, key role of the word of God is one of authority. It is the definitive place that we go to to know how we should live our lives as believers. I'm not thinking of in the local church. I'm thinking of as believers. Once we've been added to the church. The word of God is our authority for how we should live. That's how God has revealed to us his mind. In written form. Yes, of course, Hebrews tells us that he has spoken to us in these last days in the person of his son. 
And that's entirely accurate, obviously. But the things that the Son said are recorded in the Gospels. The things that God himself, through the Holy Spirit, revealed to the apostles are recorded in the other books. And Revelation, of course, is a special case. This is what God wants you and me to know about how we should live. It's critical. And it's authoritative. It is to be obeyed. See, it would be hypocrisy to proclaim the word, thinking of what we were talking about a moment ago, but not practice it. We've got to get both sides. Both are important, both are essential. We can't go and proclaim to those who are lost that they need to repent and change their lives and come to God. And then when they look at our lives, they think, what's he talking about? We need to follow the word of God. And equally, we can't say that we need to follow the word of God in our lives and not tell others of their need. Because it's explicit that we need to, apart from anything else. And as Paul goes on to deal with this problem of idleness, there's an interesting little thing I'd like to just pick up that's, that's almost an aside, but the way in which he does it um, is that he commends the majority and he starts to work through, and you can see as he goes through uh, between verses 6 and 15 that he narrows it down until he's singling out those who are the idlers. There's a, good bit of pra- there's a good practice in there for how to deal with issues and deal with problems. You don't just make a blanket rule and tell everybody that they've got to stop doing something when they're not actually doing the wrong thing themselves. That disenfranchises people. And what it does mean is we've got to have a responsibility to face up to dealing with problems where we see them. You know, it's easier to stand up or, well, nowadays, send an email at work to 250 people telling them not to do such and such a thing than it is to contact the person you know who's doing it and ask them to come and see you. And in the world, that's a technique. And when we're dealing with those who do not obey the word, now I know we often think there's a special role for elders, but actually the the role of addressing problems in fellow saints is not exclusively for elders. It's something that we all have a responsibility for. And when we see someone who's not obeying the word of God, 
not doing what they're commanded to do. We should get to the root of the problem and speak to them. You know, we shouldn't go and tell somebody else so that they might do it. We should try and do it ourselves. Now, depending on the magnitude of the problem, you might need help type of thing. We might need help to do it. But you get the gist of the, the issue. And Paul focuses in on these particular people and uh, deals, with, deals with their problem. So that really is, is a little bit of an aside of good practice. But the last verse that we read, verse 5, says, May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Two lovely concepts, the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. These are things that we can delight in. And in one sense, Paul is directing our hearts to these things, to think about them. Or he's praying that the Lord will anyway. And we could say that God's love to us arouses our love to him, and that is true. But I think it's more that Paul is praying that the Lord would direct their hearts towards being like, or would mould their hearts towards the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. And as the word of God apply, is applied in our lives, and as its authority takes effect in our lives, as we do the things that are commanded, the very, the very uh, immediately preceding words, then our hearts should cause us to become more godlike and more Christ-like. There is a purpose in this. There's a greater purpose, which is our glorification at the coming of the Lord. But there's a purpose in our lives to become more like Christ. And the way to get there is in God's word. It's no easy, is it? We don't all like being told what we shouldn't do when we're doing it. That's that part of the flesh that's still there in us all. And I guess it's there till the time we die and we're taken to, the Lord, to be with the Lord. So in the light of all the things that Paul has been teaching about future events, about the fact that the Lord is coming... And he's going to take us to be with himself so that we will be forever with him and be like him. Says Paul, follow the things that we command, i.e. the word of God, that you might be more Christ-like. You know, it's interesting that there's a great comparison between what we've been thinking here about the emphasis that Paul has made in the importance of the gospel and in teaching with the Great Commission. We're back to Matthew's gospel again. The last words of the Lord to the apostles. 
Go ye therefore and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And there's a wee reference to verse 3 as well, if you like. And behold, I am with you always. We're here for a purpose. And we have responsibility to fulfill that purpose. It's not just about feeling good. Great though it is to rejoice in our salvation. But, says Paul, there's a job to be done. The word of God is to be spread in the world. And the word of God is to have authority within his church. Amongst the believers. And we should apply that day by day. And Paul's prayer that the Lord would direct our hearts that we might become more Christ-like in our steadfastness, in our patience, and in our endurance, and be characterised by the love of God. There's a challenge there to us. But Paul reminds us that it's not an optional thing. It's actually a command from the risen Lord, going right back to what he said to the apostles. And therein lies the challenge for us, for you, and for me, shall we pray? Father, we think of these words that we've read and we give thanks that we have this knowledge that your word is complete for us and tells us what we need to know about how to live our lives. And Father, we do confess that we are not always obedient to it. There are aspects of it that each of us finds challenging each in different ways, each having our own unique set of difficulties. But Father, we do recognise that that which we ought to be is where we should aim. We do pray that we might indeed see what your word tells us we should be doing and follow it. And help us too to use your word in proclaiming the need that men and women have and the remedy that there is in the work of the Lord Jesus through faith. Help us to focus on both of these things that we might live lives that please you in his name. Amen.